morning, everybody. Uh, great to see you here this morning. And uh, we're in session two here of our conference where we're looking at uh, leaders that last. And uh, I want to begin this morning by just reading a section of a review uh, that I read in November last. It was a review of a book uh, on anti-fragile leadership. And the review was written by uh, Doug Wilson. This book, uh, Anti-Fragile Leadership, is a is a secular book, and Doug Wilson uh, is a pastor who read uh, this book and did a review that I found insightful. Doug Wilson writes the following. He says, Institutions, corporations, management systems, biological organisms can be fragile, robust, or anti-fragile. According to the author, fragile systems require predictability. They want an environment to be placid. They want uh, as much protection as possible from external stresses. Robust systems do okay when they're in trouble. They, they are resilient. But anti-fragile systems are complicated. They positively thrive in the midst of chaos. Chaos is the soil in which they grow and flourish. In peaceful times, a fragile system can give the appearance of stability. But this is just a mark of fragility. And because uh, it is easy to be foolish, many people strive for just that, appearance. Not many people know that the house built on sand had a five-star rating. Wilson goes on to write, Two historical examples of a fragile system that did not appear to be fragile, but were of the Soviet Union prior to its collapse and medieval Christianity prior to the Reformation. When subsequent events took them over, rare but extreme happenings, their fragility was exposed. Fragile systems are cowardly. Because the world is filled with, with risk, the way that fragile systems manage this is by trying to outsource the risk. But the best way to cultivate an anti-fragile system is not through recklessness, but by a means of carefully thought through, skin-in-the-game approach. A lot of pastors could benefit from the gleanings of the principles found in this book. They want to build a peaceful church that is free from controversy, and so instead build a fragile one that is entirely vulnerable. In the name of fighting off infection, they put their immune system under a ban. I can't tell you how many times I've heard pastors insisting on fragility as though it were one of the fruits of the Spirit. And Wilson concludes by quoting Psalm 106, verse 15. And he gave them their request sent leanness into their souls. And so what I want to reflect on in my session this morning is how do we as leaders build anti-fragile churches? How do we as leaders become anti-fragile leaders so that we become leaders that last? How do we become leaders that don't just survive difficult times, but actually thrive in the midst of difficulties? That when hardships come, Way. Uh, we ourselves don't collapse, the churches that we lead don't collapse, but actually we press on into God in fresh ways that really cause us to thrive. I just want to suggest to you that being an anti-fragile leader and being an anti-fragile church, I don't believe could be more relevant in South Africa today because we live in challenging times, do we not? Whether it's political or economic or social, or if you're from Cape Town, environmental challenges are all around us, are they not? And therefore, we need some internal scaffolding uh, to really cause us to become the anti-fragile leaders that God wants us to be. So where are we to find help? Well, in the Bible itself. So if you've got your Bibles here, if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to be looking at the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4 and draw out seven principles that I think are essential for becoming an anti-fragile leader. Apostle Paul writes the following. He says, as a prisoner from the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given just as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says he ascended on high, took captives, and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? And he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity uh, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray, Lord. We pray as we come to your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would strengthen and garrison us, that we truly could become anti-fragile leaders. And all God's people said, first thing that I want uh, you to note in this passage that is essential uh, for us to become in anti-fragile leaders is a trusting God. I want you to notice verse 1. Paul describes himself as a prisoner of the Lord. The context in which Paul is writing here is he's writing to the church uh, in Ephesus, but he is writing from a Roman prison, uh, which is a hard and difficult place. But what is insightful in chapter 4 is that Paul describes himself not as a prisoner of Rome, not a prisoner of the Roman Empire, but a prisoner of the Lord. Right at the outset, Paul knew at the, at the deepest and most fundamental level uh, that God was in control, that he wasn't a victim of circumstance, he wasn't being uh, pushed here and pushed there, but that God was in control of his life. And therefore, he was a prisoner of the Lord. Yes, he was in prison. Yes, he was in a dark and difficult place. But that wasn't first and foremost because of the Romans. That was because God was sovereign and in control. And at the deep fundamental level, Paul could place his trust in God. And I just want, to st want you to notice that this is quite remarkable when you think about the last time Paul was in prison. Because can you remember the last time Paul was in prison? What happened when Paul was in prison the last time? Well, he wasn't in prison very long. And a church was planted because he was in prison. He got thrown into prison, and then he's praying and worshiping, and God sends an earthquake. Earthquake cracks open. The Philippian jailer comes to the Lord. His family comes to the Lord. A church gets planted, and it's absolutely incredible. And no doubt, if you were on Paul's kind of WhatsApp group the moment he went into prison again, and the Corinthian church is like freaking out, and the church in, in Ephesus are freaking out, it's like the Philippians are like, guys, can you just chillax, just pray a little bit? This is it's going to be like a 24-hour gig. You're going to see there's going to be another church that's going to get planted. God's got this in control. God can send an earthquake. God backs the man of God. It's all going to happen. Just wait, just wait, just wait. He, I, I bet he sees worshiping like he was last time. And no doubt Paul did worship that night. But there was no earthquake. And then he worshiped the next day. And then the next day. And the next day. And days turned to weeks, turned to months, turned to years. It's like, what's going on, Lord? Like, we have this deal. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm on mission for you. I'm planning churches. And even if I get into a, a really difficult place, we, we, we know the kind of God you are. You're the God that sends the earthquake. You're the God that cracks us out of the prison. But Paul, at a deep, fundamental level, was not an anti-fragile, well, was an anti-fragile leader. He wasn't a fragile leader. He didn't need everything to go his way for him to believe in God. And even in prison, 
He wasn't the prisoner of Rome. He was a prisoner of the Lord. He was a prisoner of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon says, when you cannot trace his hand, you must learn to trust his heart. When you can't work it out, when it doesn't make sense, I don't get this. This is poor. What are you doing? This is crazy. This is the most effective church plant in church history at this point. And why have you got him into prison? Well, Paul had learned the secret that when he couldn't trace his hand, he learned to trust God's heart. It's the very reason why to the letter to the Romans, he said, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What's a really difficult word to swallow there in Romans 8.28? For we know that in all things. And you're like, seriously? Like, we, we, we're South Africans here. Hey? We, 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 we're pretty much an, an optimistic bunch. Like, if I was in the UK uh, and we wanted to rewrite this in the UK, we'd be like, and the Lord works like some things for the good. I think I could get the British believers to go for. But we're South Africans, so we could go for, and we know that God is working most things for the good. We're kind of like an optimistic people, aren't we? God's working most things for the good. But, but none of us would want to push to God's working all things for the good, right? Because if God's working all things for the good, then it means that he's working that thing for the good. And there's no ways that he's working that thing for the good. There's no ways that that thing God could be using for our good and for his glory. But that is exactly what Paul does say. For we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him. And have been called according to his purposes. And friends, when, when things go wrong in our life, when things turn south, the easiest thing for us to believe is God doesn't know, God doesn't care, and God isn't at work. But that is a complete lie. When you read the Bible over and over and over again, you will realize without a shadow of a doubt is that God knows. God knows everything. There's nothing that happens to you that God doesn't know. Secondly, God cares. Nobody cares for you more than God does. And thirdly, God is at work. You may think he's not at work. You may not be able to work out how he is at work. But he is at work. He is working all things together for good. And I can tell you, but when Peter Howard Brown is going amen in the front, he preaches a much better sermon than I do. He's working all things for the good. Michael Eaton says, if we correctly understand Romans 8.28, we can fairly translate it. When everything is going wrong, actually everything is going right. If God is working all things for the good, it means that when everything is going wrong, actually everything is going right. And if you really believe that, at the most deepest fundamental level, it will make you an incredible anti-fragile leader. Because at your very worst moments, you will know God knows. And you will know that God cares. And you will know that God is at work. Paul had no idea what God was up to. He had in a generic sense, God's good, God cares, God's at work. But he had no idea that the letter that he was writing, describing himself as a prisoner of the Lord, would be read to hundreds of people on a Friday morning in 2018. In Clueth, he just had no idea. And friends, when we trust God, when we believe God in the midst of our agonies, we have no idea of the ripple effect that it is having on those around us. God, help us to see you clearly enough and to believe the biblical portrait that we get of you, that we can be those that trust you in the midst of of genuine trial. The second thing that we need to do in order to be anti-fragile leaders is to reflect a Christ-like response. 
Paul, having described his circumstance, then calls this church uh, to a counterintuitive response. Today, it's quite popular to put on these uh, various uh, kind of series where individuals or groups of people are put in very difficult circumstances to see whether they will survive and how they will do. And the reason why we kind of intrigue when people are put on an island for 40 days or dropped in a forest and seen whether they're going to survive without hardly any food, the, the reason why we, we kind of intrigued by it is because the very normal response to people placed under severe pressure is for them to respond in immature ways, for conflict to occur, for, for, for negative events to transpire because of the pressure that they are under, and that makes for good TV, it makes for good drama. It's the same kind of philosophy that uh, elite uh, Armies uh, do when they're seeking to train their royal marines. Uh, they, they put them in the most severe situations because what they want to see is how does this person respond uh, when they haven't really had any sleep and they haven't really had any food for days? How do they respond in these intense situations? Because if we're going to have this elite group, what's going to be key is that they're going to be sent into very harsh conditions and how they respond in those really harsh conditions really matter. Now, you don't have to have been on one of these TV programs or join the Royal Marines to know this kind of dynamic I play. You just need to go on a camping holiday as a family, and you know what it's like when you don't really sleep properly and you're not really comfortable and you can't really eat properly. It, it, it normally doesn't end well. It, it, it that doesn't end in a happy way, does it? We don't normally respond well when we're in difficult circumstances, but Paul is actually saying to us that when we are in the midst of difficulty, what is really important is that we respond with Christ-like maturity. When we encounter immaturity, when we encounter difficulty, when we encounter hardship, if as individuals we can press into Jesus and impress into the grace of God, we can make a massive difference. The way to respond to immaturity is to respond in a mature way. And as a leader, that really is the province of our operation. To engage with immaturity and to cover it with maturity. And the testimony of the Bible is that if you have immaturity covered with maturity, maturity wins. I've been married for 21 years, and my wife's maturity proves that you can put maturity over immaturity, and maturity wins. It brings you to a happy place. And that is the essence of Christian leadership, maturity placed on immaturity. We know that maturity wins because Jesus Christ was the only truly godly mature person that's ever walked the earth, and he's going he's gonna to cover the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. One person being genuinely mature and trusting God can massively diffuse even the most complex and difficult situation. And so Paul, having highlighted God's sovereignty, then calls this community to godly character. He calls them to be completely humble and gentle. In other words, to be like Jesus. Jesus himself is one that was described as humble and gentle in heart. Being completely humble and gentle uh, means that I don't assume that my version of events are right. Uh, it, it means that uh, when I engage things, I do that with a gentleness and a sensitivity. Don Carson writes that humility suggests a certain kind of lowliness, cheerfully allowing others to take precedence over us. As, over us, building others up, cheerfully counting others better than ourselves. Meekness is not uh, slighting others when we're offended. It's not one who retaliates. It goes quickly to God in prayer, as did Moses when confronted with opposition. It doesn't keep scorecards. So there's a call to be completely humble and gentle. There's a, there's a call to be patient. The, the, the Greek word here is a, a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune without complaint or irritation. Patience is to be long-suffering. Being patient, allowing somebody to make the same mistake again. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. 
and it is a really necessary characteristic if we are going to be anti-fragile leaders. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Stephen, you don't know my circumstance. You know, I've been super patient, super patient, super patient, and then the problem still persists. What am I going to do now? Which is why Paul adds, and bear with one another in love. What's bearing with one another? Bearing with one another is when patience runs dry. When you've run out of patience, then you get to bear with. When you've got no more patience, then you bear with. You don't become a bear, but you bear with. You bear with the challenges and the difficulties. Being immature is easy. Do you want to be fragile? Be immature. It's easy. We get into cycles of folly. Immaturity meets immaturity, and it blows. We get into the cycle of folly. I respond to your immaturity with my immaturity. It makes the situation worse. You then respond to this now worse situation with your immaturity. And we just got the snowball effect of immaturity. Immaturity is easy. It comes naturally to us. We don't have to try to be immature. We will naturally be immature. But if we connect it to Jesus, if we're loving Jesus, if we're thinking about Jesus, if we're meditating on Jesus, if we're filled with the Spirit, then we're going to respond in different ways. We're going to have a counterintuitive response in the midst of the challenge. We're not going to blow up and then go for a walk and reflect on it and think, gee, I really shouldn't have responded like that. No, when we become better leaders, we learn not to blow up in the first place. We, when the explosion is happening in somebody else, we're able to access the Holy Spirit in that moment, not to meet fire with fire, but to meet fire with Jesus, to meet fire with maturity. And when we do that, we become an anti-fragile leader. And when an eldership team and a leadership team is like that, we become an anti-fragile leadership team because we can handle immaturity. Because we don't bring, we don't meet immaturity with immaturity and make things worse. We absorb immaturity and we help disciple people to be mature, to be like Christ. And Christ is bulletproof. Because you can nail him to a cross and he's still going to be raised from the dead. You can't kill him. He's eternal. He's everlasting. The third thing uh, that we need to do in order to be anti-fragile leaders and anti-fragile churches is that we need to be those that strive for unity. Notice verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, it's just really important to note here that this idea of unity in the book of Ephesians is massive. The unity here is Jew and Gentile uh, worshiping God together, this one new man in Christ. And according to Ephesians 2, it took nothing less than the finished work of Christ to destroy the dividing wall of hostility that stood against us in order to create this new humanity, Jew and Gentile, worshiping Jesus together. Not only did it take uh, the work of Christ, but it also took the work of the Spirit. Notice Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We're not called to create a spirit of unity, but we are called to keep the unity that we already have in the Spirit. It already exists. And Paul says we need to make every effort in order to keep it. And I would just say, like, if verse 3 was just applied on leadership teams and in churches, we would have way more anti-fragile leadership teams and churches that, that we do. Because Paul always places it on your lap to do something about it. But, 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 you don't know what they did. But, 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 you don't know that they've done it before. But, 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 and Paul isn't interested in it. He's just saying, please, you make every effort. But they, but, but, you need to make every effort. If you're in a relationship that is, uh, isn't reconciled, it's always your responsibility to do it. But, 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 make every effort. This verse, so many of us just completely ignore. If you're the kind of person that is um, a conflict avoider, you, you, you really hate this. Or you think you're obeying it by, doing, by not engaging it. Like, I am keeping the unity. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not speaking about it. But actually, problems just fester. Paul says... All of us are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And the way that we do that 
an application of that, Paul speaks about in verse 15, where we are to grow into maturity by speaking the truth in love. We guard this unity, we grow in maturity, Paul says, by speaking the truth in love. We need two ingredients in our communication to help guard the unity that we have, and that is love and truth. Tim Keller writes the following. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports, it affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked both by radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling and rest in God's mercy and grace. John Stott puts it like this. Truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold both, both together, which should not be difficult for the spiritful believer, since the Holy Spirit himself is the spirit of truth, and his first fruit is love. It shouldn't be difficult, but why is it difficult? Why is it difficult? Well, it's difficult because dispositionally, we are drawn to one of these more than the other. Some of us love love, and others of us love truth. And so the idea of speaking the truth in love is hard because we're naturally drawn to one. For some of us, we're, we're, we're the lovers, we're the peacemakers, we're, we're the cheerleaders. We just want to encourage. And for others of us, we are the theologically grounded. We're the truth tellers. We're the defenders of the faith. We are the gatekeepers. We're the guards. And so the lovers want to respond in a particular way. And the truth tellers want to respond in a particular way. But Paul is calling us to speak the truth in love. Which makes it difficult. Not only do we have a propensity towards being more interested in truth or more interested in peacemaking, but it can get complicated because you may be somebody who really loves truth and defends truth, but you may be a conflict avoider. So although you love truth and you're passionate in truth and you guard it, want to guard truth, you nevertheless aren't into uh, bouncing up and having difficult conversations. And so it's a complex thing. And as a result of that, we tend to withdraw, do we not? But friends, we need to think about why just being loving and not being truthful is wrong. And we need to think why just being truthful, uh, being loving and not being truthful is wrong, just being truthful and not being loving is wrong. Let's think about those that love but without truth. We know from reading the Bible that people left to themselves can't see their errors. We understand that sanctification, as the Bible describes, requires a community. You actually can't see your weaknesses by yourself. You can't actually grow by yourself. You can only really reach maturity in the context of community. Which means that if you're a loving person and you're withholding speaking to somebody, you can see an error and a weakness and a deficiency in them, but because you're a loving person, you don't really want to speak to that person about it. What you're actually doing is leaving them in immaturity because they won't be able to see their error without your help. The second reason for being loving without being a truth-teller is that for many, not all, but for many, if you ask people, well, well why don't you want to have that Difficult conversation. And they say, well, I'm a peacemaker. I like to love. I like to encourage. I don't like to have these difficult conversations. And then if you start pressing a bit deeper, well, why don't you want to do that? What you'll find is they've kind of got an identity in this. I really like to be a loving person. I like to be a peacemaker. I like to be an encourager, which means I like to be thought of as a loving, peacemaking kind of person. 
But actually, the root of that is actually quite selfish. It's so that other people would think well of you, not that you would actually help other people. And so although you may have this projection of being loving, maybe if you analyze the root of that, it may not be as loving as you think. Or what's wrong with doing truth without love? The problem with doing truth without love is that people often can't or won't receive truth if it's simply delivered in a harsh and judgmental way. And our goal at sharing truth must always be redemptive. We must always want people to grow and develop. And therefore, what we say is important, but equally as important is how we say it. Will the person who hears us be able to really receive the truth that we're going to share? Many people who are the truth-teller kind of type, if you press them, you'll find out that actually, not only do they love the truth, they also love being right. And they love being seen as being right. Which is truthful, but not nice. And so if we are to mature as individuals, as leadership teams, as churches, it means that the loving people need to gain the courage in God to share difficult truths. And the truth-telling people need to learn the ability to tell things in a loving and a gracious way so that people will actually receive what they've got to say. Friends, I just want to suggest to you that if we don't get good at this, we will become incredibly fragile because we will not be able to deal with the difficult situation. And you can fool yourself by thinking that by simply avoiding a difficult conversation, it will resolve itself. It will not. I'm actually very patient at, dealing, at ignoring difficult things, not having the difficult conversation doesn't solve it. It goes septic. It builds up. It will have to be launched at some point. You can be fooling yourself by thinking, oh, no, 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 we, we, we're all fine here. We're all fine. There are no issues because we don't deal with the issues that are really there. But the issues that are really there are not going to go away until we have mature conversations in order to actually deal with those issues. And so you may be on an eldership team and think, hey, we're, we're awesome. We've got an incredible, we've, we've never had a disagreement. I don't think that's mature. If you're on a team that's never disagreed on anything, then there are, there are disagreements awaiting you that are building up. I don't want to be a prophet of doom. But there are, converse, there are difficult conversations waiting for you. And this is a skill set that we all need to grow in. If we are to be anti-fragile, otherwise we're fooling ourselves that we're anti-fragile, but at some point it's going to blow and it's not going to be good. The fourth thing that I want you to notice uh, in Ephesians 4 is this call to live with theological clarity, to have core theological foundations established. We see this in verses 4 through 6. Notice there's one body and one spirit and one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all. Maintaining unity isn't reducing everything down to the lowest common denominator. It isn't just to say, well, we love Jesus and let's sing Kumbaya and let's really hope for the best. That isn't biblical unity. Biblical unity is having theological clarity, really believing the same things. Paul in Romans 5, he says, so that with one heart and one mind that we glorify Jesus Christ. And friends, it's not good enough just to be of one heart. We're all matey, matey and we... We love each other in that sense, but we, we think very, very differently about really key issues. And friends, I want to suggest to you that particularly uh, churches that are more influenced by Western culture, we, 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 we are going into a dark and difficult time where a superficial 
theological conviction will simply not win the day. There maybe was a time where, where, where Christianity was kind of the dominant cultural worldview and so you could get away with planting churches where you didn't really know, you didn't have deep convictions. You kind of thought, well, yeah, this is kind of what we believe and we're going to be attractional and it's going to be fine. Friends, we, we, we're going into a season where there is, is going to be massive pushback. And if your modus operandi as a church leader is, well, we're just going to do whatever works there's probably a 50-50 chance that you're not even going to be a real church in the future. Because if it's just about what the culture wants, if it's just about, hey, what's acceptable to the culture, you're going to be building something that isn't even Christianity in a decade. So if you want to be anti-fragile, you need to start reading the Bible. And you need to start getting convictions for yourself. Because when you start getting shot by culture, it's not going to be good enough to say, well, so-and-so's really clear on this. So-and-so's really got a conviction. When you start taking the bullets, you're going to have to have the conviction on it. You're going to have to really believe that this is what the Bible teaches when it's super unpopular and your kids get mocked and we become the cultural pariahs. Then you better know that what you're standing on really matters. Otherwise, you're just going to cave. Paul tells us that the time is coming where people will just gather teachers around them to teach them what their itching ears want to hear. It's critical that we actually believe this stuff for ourselves. It's not good enough to say, well, I'm a part of advance and they really take the Bible seriously, I think, I hope. I hope somebody really knows what we think about important cultural issues. It's not good enough. Lovingly and respectfully, guys, it's not good enough to be a nice guy who's doing well at business and being an elder. I'm glad you're doing well at business. I'm glad you're a nice guy. But you actually need to be able to defend the Bible. You need to be able to teach. You need to have a biblical conviction around what is right and what the Bible teaches. You need to be able to defend this. We're coming into a season culturally where we, we need to be able to defend what the Bible says out of our own personal convictions. Guys, simply teaching, preaching messages that are kind of psychologically soothing for God's people isn't going to cut it. And there are large churches that at the moment, it just seems like, wow, they're incredible. They're doing, and culturally will just collapse. Because they actually haven't built, they haven't undergirded by building a clear theological foundation. Read, read the epistles. Look what Paul writes about. When he's, when he's writing to churches that are going through terrible times, he's not actually addressing their immediate needs. Why? Because he knows by just helping people with their immediate need isn't actually helping them. Actually, you need to undergird them on who Jesus is and what he's about and his eternal purposes and catching them up on mission and having a massive view of God. Those are the things that are actually going to sustain people through the real challenges of life. And therefore, we need to be those that do the hard yards, which is why Paul In verse 14 then says, we are no longer to be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. Paul says that as we mature and grow, we are not going to be spiritual babies. We will no longer be infants. And if we are to be anti-fragile leaders and anti-fragile churches and anti-fragile movement, then we need to stop being spiritual babies. What What is a sign that you're a baby? A sign that you're a baby is that somebody else has got to feed you because you're not discerning about what you're eating. We do not allow a baby just to decide what they're going to eat because if there was some cyanide there in a bottle, they could do that. So we need to control what they, what they eat. Babies need to have their food controlled. Babies are not steady. So initially they can't even sit, you know, they kind of flop to one side or when they start to walk, they can fall over. And so there's a whole lot of mechanisms that you need to put around a baby in order to stabilize them. 
But as leaders, we cannot remain as spiritual infants. We need to grow in discernment. We need to understand what healthy food is and what uh, other food is. And we, we need to be stable, which means that we're not blown around by here, there, this fad, that fad. It means it's, it's like, you know, I come to an advanced conference, it's like, oh, they're going to do the gospel again. Why are they doing that? Because we're not some weird movement that goes after every fan. And this year it's bing, it's soul church. And now we're doing this and now we're doing that. And it's just like, whoa. We're not, we don't have theological ADHD. We're not just like ding, 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 you know? Like either Jesus is alive and the gospel is real and it works or it doesn't. And if it doesn't work, let's pack up and go find something else to do. But let's not invent little trinkets like to, to try and entertain God's people. Either Jesus is enough or it's he's not. Either the gospel works or it doesn't. And if it does work, let's believe it and let's do long obedience in the same direction. Let's be stable. Let's be committed. Fifthly, Paul celebrates the uniqueness of each person. Notice verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given just as Christ has apportioned it. We become anti-fragile churches and leaders when we release the body of Christ to do the work that it's meant to do. Churches that are built around one person, one personality, one gifting uh, are fragile and likely to fall apart. Notice right through Ephesians 4, Paul is consistently calling the whole body to be mobilized. We see this in verse 7, to each one grace has been given. The ascended Christ has given a unique spiritual gift to each person within the community. The requirements of Christian leadership is not to monopolize ministry, but to equip God's people for the works of service. And then he concludes when he speaks about each part doing its work. He speaks about the supporting ligaments that are critical for the body to do its work. And so we malfunction when we make church around one gift or a couple of gifts instead of making it about the whole body. Uh, We become fragile when we are not active in training and equipping people to do the works of service. We become fragile when we do not value the hidden gifts. Interesting thing is Paul's writing this, no doubt he's influenced by Dr. Luke in some way, but we've got way more medical understanding now than Paul had. And we know that like you can't see a ligament and the ligament doesn't really seem important, but if you bust a ligament, you, you become immobile, Right? You need crutches to be able to walk. You can no longer walk. The whole body is rendered immobile just because a particular ligament breaks. And friends, as leaders, we need to do due care to look after supporting ligaments. Not be so focused about who's on this thing. Because this isn't church. This is just like somebody... like playing a guitar and singing. They're singing. Awesome. They're on a stage. In our culture, that seems better. I don't know why, but it is. And then somebody talking here. This, is, this isn't church. This is just, I'm teaching you from the Bible, hopefully to equip you to do works of ministry. And we're so focused on this, and so many conversations are about this, and way too little conversations are about the people that are actually in our church equipping them to do the work of ministry. And if we are not focused on mobilizing the whole body, we are fragile whether we want to know it or not. And all of us know, like hypergalactic, way more gifted than I would be in a hundred lifetimes, churches that grow incredibly, but then the leader falls and the whole thing collapses. It's fragile. Why? Because it's built to one person. Exceptionally gifted, great, maximizing their gift, cool. In, in some respects, for gospel reasons, I don't have a problem with it, but it is fragile. It's not the measure of maturity. Maturity is when a whole body is equipped to do the work of ministry. The actual true measure of leadership is what happens to the church when the leader's not there. If the church collapses, he wasn't a good leader. He didn't do Ephesians 4. He didn't equip others. It was just about gathering a crowd to his gift. His gift, great, not a good leader. We need to take careful attention of this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the hidden 
the hidden gifts, deserve particular honor. Like the public things, like they get way, way more than enough. Anybody's in preaching, even if you're just half good, you get ridiculous amounts of encouragement relevant to people that are serving in radical, sacrificial ways. So everybody, everybody needs to be equipped. Sixthly, I want you to notice that although everybody needs to be equipped, there is actually a gift of leadership. The ascended Christ does give gifts of leadership in order to equip God's people to do the works of service. The goal of leadership that God gives the church is to equip God's people uh, to do works of service so that they can grow into the maturity of Christ. And not only is there a need for leadership, but there is a need for a diversity of leadership. So if we are to be an anti-fragile church or movement, we need to play with a full deck of cards. The ascended Christ has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And as I look at movements around the world, I Often movements can just center around one gift. So you get movements centered around the teacher, and we're we're like the theologically accurate group. We've got it all we've we've got it all pinned down. We know everything. Or we get the, the movement centered around the pastor. Everybody's loved and we sing kumbaya and we it's it's so matey, matey and um you know, if you're diabetic, you can't stand it because it's just, it's like so sugary. It's, uh, or, or the evangelist, you know, we've seen souls saved, hundreds and thousands, and it's like people are getting saved and saved and saved and saved, but churches aren't being planted and people aren't being brought to maturity, but people are coming to Christ. Or prophetic movements where it's just like pyrotechnics, it's just like incredible names, I mean, Credit card numbers, you gold dust, gold teeth, gold hair. I don't know. Well, what's next? It's incredible. And then apostolic movements, which it's like, to the ends of the earth. And we need all. We need all in order to reach maturity. That's what the book says. We need all of those gifts in play in order to reach maturity. And we're only going to grow as a movement where we see all five gifts grow. And, and it's actually way more nuanced than that because in any one of these gifts, you get different kinds of teachers. You get different kinds of evangelists, right? You get different kinds of pastors, different kinds of prophetic ministry. So there's different kinds. There's measure within those different kinds. It's incredibly nuanced and put together. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's born of the Spirit. And we're only going to grow as we see these gifts being cultivated in order to help strengthen churches, in order to help us plant churches. Because it's not just around strengthening here. We need these gifts in order to see churches planted in the first place. We need to play with a full deck of cards unapologetically. And some of you are really evangelists at heart. And you don't really want to do that because there isn't an evangelist lane to run in. So you think like the only way I can really make sense of my, my ministry, I can only have significance in advance if I'm something else. And please don't do that. Please don't do that. If you've got a prophetic gift in, we, we, we need to hear from God in an immediate now way, in the way that Paul heard that got him to Rome. We need all the gifts. We need to be playing with a full deck of cards. And then the final thing that we see here, point seven, is the goal is maturity. The goal is maturity. We are to grow up, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together, and every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So the goal is that we grow to become like Christ. And it's just really helpful to know what the goal is. If you don't know what the goal is, it's easy to get confused. It's easy to get lost. It's easy to get disappointed. What is the goal of your leadership? The goal of you, for you personally is that God will transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And then your goal as a leader is to produce Christ-like maturity. That is the goal. And because that is the goal, hardships and difficulties 
don't stop you from attaining your goal. Sometimes if I do some pastoring where somebody will come to chat to me about how difficult their marriage is going and how difficult their spouse is, sometimes I'll say to them, uh, what, what is the goal of your marriage? And they'll kind of look at me. And if they're not that thoughtful, they'll say, to be personally happy. And if they're more thoughtful, uh, they'll fake it and say, uh, to glorify God. To glorify God. So then I'll say, well, if the goal of your marriage is to glorify God, And the contribution that you need to make in order to glorify God is to demonstrate sacrificial love. Would you agree with me that the worse your spouse is, the greater opportunity you have to express sacrificial love? So the worse they are, the greater opportunity you have to demonstrate Christ-like sacrificial love. So a bad spouse doesn't hinder your ability to glorify God. It actually enhances it, which is actually the incredible thing about Christian marriage. A bad spouse doesn't stop you doing from what God wants you to do. It actually enhances it. And I just think that's true of Christian leadership. You've got a really tough eldership team. You've got more chance to glorify God. You've got a really immature church you've got more opportunity to glorify God. You've got more opportunity to be completely humble and gentle and patient and bear with them. Now, I just have one of the most mature eldership teams and one of the most mature churches, which tells you something about my level of maturity. God wouldn't tempt me beyond what I could handle. But you may not be as fortunate as I am. You may be mature, and God may be testing you. Can you take the test? Can you be empowered by the Spirit? Can you love Jesus? Can you believe Him? That even when you can't trace His hand, that your trust is hard. Friends, as we do this, in the power of the Spirit, and motivated by grace, we will become anti-fragile leaders. Circumstances won't define whether we make it or not. But we will trust God and live lives for his glory, for the good of the church, and for the good of the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to come to you, and Lord, we just want to acknowledge that left to ourselves, uh, we are incredibly fragile leaders. Lord, left to ourselves, we um, do not respond the way that we meant to. Left to ourselves, we make it all about us and not about you. And we really need your help to grow and mature. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us and that you would empower us and you would help us to be the leaders that we need to be, that would bring you glory and would absorb immaturity for your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.